as I was preparing this weekend, just um, asking God for what I should preach this weekend, I started thinking of this passage, and one little verse jumped out to me. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And I want to ask some questions before I start. Well, what is it that enabled men and women to endure the lions of the Colosseum? What is it that enabled them to do that? What, was, what it, what's enabled men and women to be burnt as, the, the, as Roman candles to light Nero's driveway and still not deny Christ? What was it? What was it that enabled men and women to withstand torture, flogging, jail, jeering, and stoning? What is it that has enabled men and women to go about in rags, destitute, mistreated, persecuted, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. That's what the scripture says. What enables men and women to do that? What, what is the thing that is, that is the testimony of centuries is that millions have died for their faith, been burnt at the stake, been drowned, beheaded, chopped in two, hacked to pieces with the sword. What is it that enables men and women to live like that? What was it that transformed a murderous, Christ-hating Jew called Paul and transformed him to be the greatest apostle that we've ever seen? And that transformed man, how could he say this? For I think that God has enabled, exhibited us apostles at the last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held, you are held in honor and we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world the refuge of all things. What enabled Paul to say that? To live a life like that? What was it that transformed cowering, miserable, hiding disciples into men that boldly proclaimed the good news of Jesus? What power is there that transforms lifeless marriages into happy, fulfilled ones? What power is there that metamorphoses grumpy old men into fun-loving husbands? What is it that turns visionless, aimless people to live lives of passion and focus and live for other people? Bob, what is it that turns sad, depressed, grieving men to those that are filled with joy? I want that power. Wouldn't you? Don't you want that power for your life? To be able to live like that. So let's, let's read Luke 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. taking the spices that they had prepared. 
and they found the stone rolled away. But when they went in, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them idle talk And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. And that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near And went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Ah, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were still with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's towards the evening, and the end of the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scripture? And they rose that same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together. And they said, the Lord is risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. When they told them what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood amongst them, and he said, Peace to you. 
but they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet? That is, I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the Scripture, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of all, uh, to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Man, <laughs> the common denominator for all those stories that are all those things I raised at the beginning was that all those lives of those men and women had been transformed and their eyes had been opened to the simple thing that resonated in their hearts that Jesus is not dead, but he's alive. And surely that is the crux of the Christian faith. If it's not, Paul was right. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all of our preaching is useless and so is your faith. That's what Paul said. I said a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about heaven that if that's true, let's close the meeting right now. Let's just go down to the pub. Let's have a good lunch together because if Jesus is not dead, if Jesus did not die and is not risen from the dead, this is all for nothing. This is just a charity getting together. My prayer this morning for every single one of you, whether you are visiting this morning and you know Jesus or you don't know Jesus, that your eyes will be opened this morning to see the risen Christ, to see the living Lord Jesus. He is not dead. He has risen from the dead. Some of those men saw that by their physical eyes, and some have believed it by faith for centuries, and it's transformed the lives of millions, countless millions of men and women. I trust that you'd see with the eye of faith this morning if you don't know Jesus. And I say that confidently. It doesn't depend on whether I preach well or preach badly. What it depends on is what we see in the Scripture and what God reveals to you by the Holy Spirit this morning as you simply listen. And so, Father, I pray. Thank you for your words. Lord, I want to pray this morning for hearts that would be open, that would be soft, that truly, Lord, we would see with the eye of faith that you do want to transform us from one degree of glory to another, that truly those things are true, Lord, that we who once were in darkness are now in the kingdom of light. You want to do that for all of us. I pray those that are here this morning that don't know you, I pray they would end this morning knowing you, the risen Christ. I bless you for your word. I thank you for all that you want to do this morning through the preaching of the Word. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the beauty of, of uh, that, that mime and also what I, the story I just read is that these things were prophesied hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before they even happened. And so we're going to look at one portion this morning, Isaiah 53. I'm going to start there, and then I'm going to talk about the resurrection life 
that dwells in all of us that know Jesus. That we don't have to live grumpy old men forever. We can live transformed lives because of the risen Christ who's alive in us, transforming us from one degree of glory to another. Amen? Isaiah 53. Again, I'm going to read a chunky portion. I don't apologize for that. I think we should read Scripture more often just so we can let it wash us and soak into us and get into our hearts. Isaiah prophesies, Isaiah 53 says this, Who has believed what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was not a Hollywood model, Jesus, all right? Scripture is quite clear. It says he had no form, no majesty that we would, 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 we would want to look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with, with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquity, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Amen. To those three things we're going to look at this morning. All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's clear the scripture. None of us had it in our hearts to find God. He found us. It's always initiated from his perspective. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. You know, I believe there's a conspiracy of silence in society. About man's responsibility for sin. About the reality of judgment. About the need for crucified Savior. There is a conspiracy of silence. And there's also a sense in the world where there's this move to give people peace of mind that they don't have anything to do with historically being responsible for the trial and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And every eye be opened and recognize this this morning, that we need a Savior. (laughs) The problem of all of that is that in this thing of brotherhood and tolerance, there's a basic misconception about Christian doctrine, basic Christian doctrine. There is a shadow over every single one of our lives, yours and mine, the fact that Jesus was bruised and beaten and wounded and crucified for the entire human race. And we like to shift the blame, don't we? We like to shift the blame onto others. We, 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 we in our hearts, could say, well, yeah, you know, Pilate made some mistakes and, and Judas did. Surely it was the fault of Judas. I mean, he was the one that betrayed Jesus. He's the one that 30 pieces of silver and a kiss gave his master away. Surely it was, Ju- you know, was, was Judas. What about Pilate, that weak-willed man that couldn't stand, that didn't have enough courage to stand for inno- an innocent man? And he, just to please the crowd, he gave Jesus up to be crucified. 
Surely it was the Jews that were responsible. When they cried this themselves. They said, his blood be on our heads and to our children's children. I mean, when I read that in the scripture, it's, it's a terrifying thing to pray, isn't it? To say. Surely it was the Romans. The Romans were responsible. The truth is they all were responsible, but every single one of us that is in the race of Adam was an accomplice to that event that happened. We too put Jesus on the cross, every single one of us. As I was preparing this morning, uh, not this morning, but this week, I just felt God remind me of these things and say, every time I get angry and anger rises up in me, I help to nail him to the cross. And so do you. Every time I don't love my wife, it's that sin that nails him there. Every time I'm, I'm harsh with my children, it's that sin that nails him there. And we like to take responsibility off ourselves and put it on other people. It's my sense of self-righteousness righteousness that makes me feel that I can judge my brothers or my sisters. It's that sin that puts him there. That's what put him on the cross. That sin that enables me to cheat on my tax return. It's that sin that puts him there. It's the jealousy, it's the hatred, it's the gossip, it's the carnality, it's the love of fleshly pleasure. All those things join with all of history to nail Jesus to that tree. Every single one of us. I read this this week, a quote by a guy called Octavius Winslow, which said this, which is also true, that it was the will of the Father to deliver his son to die for us because of his plan of redemption for all of humanity. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Isn't that amazing? It's an amazing story of redemption that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that he who believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. May every eye be open to that this morning. You can hear me say that phrase over and over. May every eye be open to that this morning, that Jesus came, that we wouldn't perish but have eternal life. I wonder how many of us, when we approach the communion table, how many of us come without a sense of shame or sense that I was one of those that helped to nail him there? And we lose the wonder, actually, of what God's love and his plan for redemption has been in sending Christ to die for our sins. You know, we like to keep ourselves distracted, keep ourselves by dist distracted by talking about many things. We like to talk about the latest movies, sport, politics, fashion, music, the need for world peace, what we're going to do in Haiti. All those things are good. I'm not saying they're not good. But all, I notice this, every conversation stops in, in homes when there's, an, when there's an uncomfortable silence which starts to happen in the room when any spiritual subject is raised. When anything that truly, truly has impact on our eternal soul and salvation is raised, there is the silence that descends upon the room and it's this kind of framework in which all of us converse is let's not this get too personal. Religion is private. And your relationship is personal. I want to say, when I look at the book of Acts, religion was very public. It was public and expressed publicly in people's homes and in, from house to house. Worship was public. And we like to keep it so private, you know, and it's the thing that really matters and we don't talk about it. But here's Isaiah says, these things are of vital importance to us. These are of lasting importance to us. That we need our eyes open to this fact that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him, the chastisement has brought us peace, and with his stripes, we are healed. 
I want to just look at that quickly this morning. How long have I been going already? Anyone? 20 minutes. Okay. These are terrible words for me. <laughs> Transgressions. Iniquities. They're old-fashioned words. And I, I know they are, but they are terrible words. What does transgression mean? Transgressions mean, it, it means it's a revolt. It means that you break away from authority when you transgress something. And in all of the universe, only man and angels have revolted against God's authority. And to this day, mankind is still in rebellion against God's authority. And it's hard to express in a short time what that really means, this thing of the fall. But in the fall, there's the perversion, the twistedness, the deformity, the crookedness of rebellion in all of us that have fallen. And that's why Jesus needed to be nailed to the cross. Oh, I pray that every heart, every eye will be open to that this morning. I mean, we don't like the word iniquity either, do we? <laughs> it's not a nice word to uh, talk about around a dinner table. Let's talk about our iniquity tonight. There's a consequence. It's an awful word. And this portion of Scripture that we read in uh, Isaiah reminds us that Jesus was broken for our iniquity. Uh, We might like to say, no, we don't want to accept that. But I want to say this, in every dark place of the world, every nook and cranny of the world, where there is sin, there's the fingerprint of man. And we can put it on everybody else and blame everybody else and try and take the the responsibility off ourselves. And it's impossible to place the guilt for our sin on anyone else. We have to take responsibility. It is ours. And it's our sin that nailed him to the tree. And the good news of Isaiah says, for our transgressions, for our iniquity, he was bruised. He was broken. He was defiled. He was stained. He was humiliated. And yet, as he was cursed, he cursed no one. As he was wounded, he wounded no one. The great mistake of Israel, what the Scripture tells us here, was her lack of perception, a lack of judgment to see that actually the one that was being crucified was not being punished for any sin that he had committed. He was being crucified for the sin that they had committed. And Isaiah says that. He says, we thought him stricken by God. In other words, we thought him being punished for his own sin, and they failed to see that the sinless lamb was being, was being punished for their sin. I pray every single one of us would see that this morning in our hearts. Our eyes will be open to that. It's not for anyone else's sin but mine, in a sense. And Isaiah says this beautiful thing. He says, the chastisement that was upon Jesus has brought us Peace. How many of you want peace? What does peace mean? Well, peace is just health, safety, welfare of every single person. And it's, and the, it's that peace that restores us to God. And that's what Isaiah is saying, is as Jesus was bruised and beaten, that which he endured brought us peace with God, that we could experience peace with God. Here's correction, the correction that Jesus underwent, the discipline that Jesus underwent on the cross was not for himself, it was for us. So we could enjoy peace with God. I'm a forgiven sinner, as many of you are in this room. I'm justified and saved by grace, as many of you are in this room. And I'm speaking as a forgiven sinner when I say that maybe a 
I can speak on behalf of others. When we experience repentance, it's just a tiny, that, that sense of remorse, that sense of God's hand upon us that we feel, it's only, it's a tiny, 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 minuscule fraction of the wounding that Jesus endured for us on the cross. Now, Isaiah sums up his message with this little phrase, with his stripes we are healed. It's not a pleasant image. How many of you saw The Passion? Yeah, with, with that, uh, that movie where, I mean, the way they portrayed it in that movie, Jesus' body was just marred and broken. And it offended some people. I remember when the first movie came out. It said, it's too violent. It's too violent. Well, actually, yes, it is very violent. And Isaiah says, by that violence, by those stripes that were bruised into Jesus' body, we are healed. Man, that is amazing. That's the glory of the cross. That's, it's that very thing that allows us relationship, fellowship with God. It begins with His suffering and it ends with our healing. It begins with His wounds and it ends up with our cleansing. May every eye be open to that this morning. That's where it begins for you and me. Are you guys still with me? I, I kind of... Can we just go to Romans chapter 6, please? Let's look at now. The fact that Jesus did die, but he rose. And what does that mean? Well, this beautiful portion in Romans chapter 6. While you were finding Romans chapter 6, J.C. Ryle said this, I find no balm for a sore conscience and a troubled heart like the sight of Jesus dying for me on the tree. There I see that a full payment has been made for all my enormous debts. The curse of the law, which I have broken, has come down on one who suffered there in my stead. The demands of the law are all satisfied. Payment has been made for me, even to the utmost farthing. It will not be required twice over. I might sometimes imagine I was too bad to be forgiven. My own heart sometimes whispers that I'm too wicked to be saved. But I know in my better moments that this is all my foolish unbelief. I read an answer to my doubts in the blood shed on Calvary. I feel sure that there's a way to, to heaven for the very vilest of men when I look to the cross. That's the gospel we preach. Amen. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried before him by baptism into death. Sorry, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection like his. We can all walk in newness of life. Man, I don't know if nothing else encourages you that this morning. That should every single one of us can walk in newness of life. Every one of us that has died with Christ and been resurrected with Him can walk in newness of life. There's a new Anthony that can walk. There's a new whoever. Uh, I can't think of people's names when I'm under pressure. <laughs> Mario. You can walk a new man. You don't have to continue like you once were. Why? Because there's a power that transforms. Transforms grumpiness into joy. A failed marriage into a fulfilled one. There's something that turns visionlessness, aimless people to those that live with passion and focus. Yes, there is. It's the grace of God poured out for us so that we can walk in newness of life. It's our position, this position that we enjoy in Christ that enables us
to walk in the newness of life. I've died together with Christ. I've also been buried with Him. I've been raised to new life. That's why I'm able to walk in newness of life. And surely that can release optimism and joy for every single one of us this morning. All the glorious power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Do you believe that? That's what the scripture says. All the power, the glorious power that that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you and I. That can give us confidence that we can walk in newness of life. I am able to positively live out the love and the life of God that God is calling me to. The, The whole war has been won and every battle that you and I face, we can face with confidence because the battle has been won in Christ. What happens when we use this phrase that we have been raised with Christ? Well, I want to point out three things. One, we are made alive. We are made alive. The scripture says Jesus was quickened and was raised. The tomb couldn't hold him down. And because we are in him, we have the same position that he enjoys. Ephesians 2 says that. It says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive in Christ. So if you are in Christ, you've been made alive. It's the same power that raised Jesus. Jesus has been raised, we have been raised. Resurrection life lives in Jesus. Resurrection life lives in you and I. It's the same power we made alive. And obviously that doesn't mean a physical body necessarily. Otherwise, we would all have to be buried somewhere. But Paul's talking about us being born from above, being born by the Spirit. We were once dead, now we're alive. Dead to the things of God, now we're able to commune with Him. Now a relationship with Him is, is possible. It's a miraculous birth that he's talking about. We'll, secondly, we have new power. We're made alive in Him, and consequently we have new power. We are new in Christ, this new position we enjoy, and we have new power. You don't need to get power. You already have all that you need because you are in Jesus. Ephesians 1.18 Paul again uses this image and he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart are open, that you can see what I'm talking about, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. According to his great and mighty strength that he's worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. God's power is already at work in all of us that are saved. And Paul prays in this little prayer that we might know what God has already done for us. Past tense. We don't need to strive to get power. We have power. Because Christ lives in us. The same power that raised him from the dead is in us. I pray that every heart would see that this morning. Every eye would see that this morning. You have all that you need for life and godliness. All that you need. We have new power. The power of death is broken. Don't want to dwell on that this morning. Thirdly, we've been glorified. We've been made alive. We have new power. And thirdly, we've been glorified. Jesus was taken up into glory. We read that at the end of that portion in Luke. Taken up to glory. He's seated in heavenly places. And because you are in him, because you are in him, you too are seated in heavenly places. That's what the scripture says. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right now, you are seated in heaven with Christ. 
our citizenship is in heaven right now. Philippians 3 verse 20. Romans 8. Those whom he has justified, he's also glorified. Michael Eaton said this, uh, um, in the mind of God, the saved are already in glory. You are already in glory. You are already seated with him in heavenly places. As Jesus is living a resurrection life right now, so do you and so do I. Colossians 3 verse 3. For he died and your life is now hidden in God, with Christ in God. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Your life is hidden in Christ right now. With, um, and this word hidden, the Greek is crypto, which means we get our word encrypt from that. It means that it's covered completely. It means that it's unnoticeable. It's secret. It's stored away in heaven. It's removed from our view. It's concealed. It's gone. It's departed. All those things. That's what means our life is, when we say it is hidden with Christ, that's what it means. That's your position. So I want to ask you to do one thing this morning. Every single one of you that, that are saved, I want to say, consider yourself dead. Consider yourself dead. You are dead. Okay? Why do I say that? Romans 6, 12. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. How many of you have struggles with sin? Anger. All these things. Well, the Bible says we need to reckon ourselves dead to those things. Dead. How do, how, how do we do that? Well, I don't think it's all that difficult. If I was to hide one person against the other, you, 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 you wouldn't see that person. You might feel that they're still there. But it's the same thing that God says we need to do with our sin. Consider it dead. dead. It's, it's gone. And that's what Paul has already said in Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified in him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Consider yourself dead. If we have died with Christ, we also live with him. And now he, in verse 12 of Romans chapter 6, he uses this word reckon and he says, you know these things, you believe these things, now reckon them true. In other words, what you say you know and what you say you believe, reckon that in effect it is true. And beginning to live a godly life simply flows out of that thing of seeing who we are in Christ. And that's why Paul uses this kind of language. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, everything that I used to be, the old Antony is gone, and there's a new one. It's no longer I that live, but Christ who lives in me. I have a new life. Jesus lives in me now. What has changed is the I. It's no longer the old I that lives, but it's a new I that lives, a resurrection one, a resurrected I. You understand what I'm trying to say? It's a new person who lives, no longer lives under law, but this new person lives under the grace of God directly, and all of us can walk and enjoy and live in the grace of God. It's fourthly, the last thing I want to say, it's a walk of faith. It's a walk of faith. We've been looking at the life of Abraham. You know, I don't, I don't particularly care whether you feel new or you don't feel new, whether I feel risen or don't feel risen, because we can't walk by what we see. We walk by faith. Faith is absolute assurance of we, what, what we do not yet see. And Abraham is the example that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, and it's the example that is used in Romans chapter 4. And God tells him, he says, you're going to have a son. The whole world is going to be blessed through your line. The problem is that Sarah's wife is barren, and we know the story. 
he's uh, Abraham's over 100 and she's over 95 before, uh, before uh, this even happens. And I've been joking with some of the guys in the evening meeting, just saying that uh, I've gone back to gym in the last while. And uh, when you're in your 40s, you can't do what you did when you were younger. It's just not physically possible. You think you can do, but you can't. And I was just thinking of this thing when I was uh, preparing another message as I was in the gym one day. I was just thinking of Abraham. I mean, what if, can you imagine him in a gym setting? Coming in, a hundred-year-old man, and speaking to all the young bucks that are there flexing their muscles and doing the exercises, and uh, they begin chatting, and he says, now, I'm the father of many nations. Uh, God's promised me. Well, where's your son? Don't have one yet. But I'm over a hundred. Can you, can you imagine that kind of thing and, and what must have been in that man's heart to be able to do, even declare that with faith? Absolutely believe in God. Abraham believed against everything that was normal. He believed, he faced the fact that his body and that the body of his wife was dead and he believed God and that was credited to him as righteousness. Romans 4.18. Our friends, I want to say this as I conclude this morning. When I came to faith, when you came to faith, when you were saved, whatever your language is, at that very moment, you were united by the Holy Spirit to Jesus and the whole story of what happened to him. The moment you believed, the same was true for you. It's a fact that I am risen in Christ. It's a fact that we have been made alive in Christ. Every one of us that believes. But I have to believe it as a sheer plain fact by faith, and then I'll begin to experience it in my life. If I see myself as a person made alive from the dead, no longer under the domination of sin, and start living with that as a basic conviction on my, over my life and over your life, you'll begin to see it in your life. That's what enabled all of those people that I started with to live such extraordinary lives. It's no longer I that live. It is Christ in me that lives. This is the hope of glory. Being risen in Christ is the basis of our relationship with God. You can't talk to a dead person. You can't reason with a dead person. You can't motivate a dead person. You can't excite a dead person move a dead person to excitement. But the good news is this, that you are not dead. You are alive. You are risen with Christ. You are alive. And because of that, the communication channels between you and God are open and we can start to enjoy this amazing adventure of faith as we simply walk by the Spirit. Sin might attack you and harass you, but it has no real power over you. It's a nuisance in your life. Yes, certainly it is. But my position is that I've been risen from the dead in Christ. And you can hold your head up high, every single one of you, every single one that is in Christ. We can hold our heads up high with expectation, with faith. Discouragement does not have to be the order of the day or the hold over your life. As we move forward with God, we can live positive lives of holiness, of love, of peace, of joy, of purity, of service, because we are alive. And because we are alive, we can walk in the newness of life because Christ has been raised from the dead. I trust that every eye will be open to that this morning. Every heart open to that this morning.